sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Thanks be to God. All right. Well, this morning we arrive, uh, as we said earlier, on the final Sunday of Advent. Uh, And this is the season in the church calendar when we look back on Jesus' first arrival and forward his final arrival. We've spent this month in the Psalms because I think that they're songs that express the deepest longing of the human heart. So sort of like an anatomy book for the human soul. There's not an emotion, a doubt, a grief, a longing, a hope, a desire that the Psalms don't guide us through in some way. Um, So over the past few weeks, this is exactly what the Psalms have shown us about our own hearts. This is an ancient book and that turns out to be so modern, so relevant, so like um, exactly the thing that we need to hear. So a few weeks back in Psalm 40, we saw that, gosh, all of us were really waiting on something. We're waiting on something. To, to make life okay, to bring meaning, and to, and to complete our lives. In Psalm 36, we saw we're all looking for a cure, right? We're, we're looking for a cure to fix our greatest problem. And we look in all kinds of different places for things to make us okay. Last week in Psalm 23, we saw that we are all following a leader, a guide, a shepherd somewhere. And we asked the question, who are you following today? Who are you following in your life? Uh, And so the thing is, the surprising answer to all of these universal human questions, whether we know it or not, the thing that our hearts are actually longing for the most is for Jesus to arrive in great power and great love. Now, I know that doesn't sound surprising this morning because you're in a church, right? Like, And that's what the preacher is supposed to say. So this is not surprising in that sense, but I would challenge you um, to think about this a little more. Because if you're honest, and if I'm honest, is Jesus really the place that we're looking for the answers to these kinds of things every day in our life? I mean, is God really where we look first while we wait, while we long for a cure? while we follow a guide and a shepherd. Because for me, God is usually kind of just the given, right? He's like the backdrop. He's, he's the assumption, and the action of life tends to be almost anywhere else. So this answer from the Psalms, I think, is actually very surprising. So as we turn to Psalm 98 today, and again, this ancient poet diagnoses our hearts yet again, 
Um, and we're going to learn that not only are we longing for all those other things, we're also longing for a deep joy. I want you to ask yourself this morning, where do you go looking for joy first and most often and most frequently? Uh, where do you look for joy most naturally, most easily? Because there are certainly uh, comforts and happiness and pleasure to be had in this world. I mean, you know, one of the places I like to go for my joy most often is right outside our windows, right? I, mean, I assume that's the reason a lot of us are here in this valley. 16 inches of fresh on a bluebird day, mm, like that's joy, right? Uh, there's, other, there's real satisfaction in ambition and success, at work, and work well done and recognized by other people. There's real comfort and wealth and all the adventures and the toys and the security that it can buy. These are good things, and there's so much in this world to be enjoyed and to be savored. There really is. The world is filled with good gifts. But underneath all of our circumstances and our experiences, our happiness or our sadness, what I'm, what, what I'm proposing, what I think the Psalms are proposing, is that there's a different kind of ache. This isn't exactly an emotion. It's sort of a pang for something that this world can't quite deliver, no matter how good or how bad the world gets. In fact, often, the more successful someone is, the more this ache is, is exposed, right? So, so this makes sense. If, if we haven't gotten everything that we've dreamed of in this world then we, it, we may still be tempted to buy into the lie that deep contentment can be found here, that there's something out there we just haven't gotten yet that's going to solve the puzzle for us. But for those rare few who really have sort of gotten everything that they've set out to achieve, who've landed at the top of their fields and gotten the wealth and the fame that come with it, if they are still missing something, well, we're all in trouble, Right? And so this happens to be exactly what we see. Listen to Anthony Hopkins, his advice to young actors. He says, I meet young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous. And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. Accept life as it is. Just be grateful to be alive. Just exit the rat race, he says. Or, or the young Tom Brady. Um, at the age of, I think, 26, he's in a 60 Minutes interview. He's already won three Super Bowls. He's married to a supermodel. He's wealthy, what we can imagine. And he says to his interviewer, um, is this it? Is this all there is? God, there's got to be more, right? This is what this is. This, is a, this exposes a longing that I think all of us have for joy. For contentment, arrest, an identity that's not dependent on the circumstances or the experiences of our lives. Something more grounded, more solid than just happiness or comfort or even pleasure. And so when those that have everything the rest of us are hoping for tell us that there's nothing there, well, we have a joy problem, don't we? Humanity has a joy problem. And whether you think it's surprising or not, the ancient wisdom of Psalm 98 points us to the arrival of Jesus in our lives in great power and great love as the only answer good enough to fill us deep enough, far enough, and satisfy us all the way down. So as we look at this psalm this morning, I want to I show you our source of joy and then the response of joy. So let's look at the source of joy first. 
Psalm 98 is divided neatly into three stanzas of three verses each. This first stanza is dominated by one word. All right, it appears in each verse, and it's sort of the sun that this whole stanza around. See if you can catch it. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known this salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's remembered his steadfast love and the faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. The word salvation, okay? And in the ancient Hebrew language that this uh, psalm, this poem was written in, this is a big word, okay? This is like a a big, powerful word. It also means victory. It was the word that was used to describe a king defeating another army on behalf of the nation that he was called to protect. And that's exactly how the psalmist is describing the marvelous things that God has done for his people. His right hand, his holy arm, have worked victory for him. The right arm is the symbol of power and strength. This is a picture of God as our champion, The one who steps in on our behalf fights the battles that we cannot possibly win. And these battles are the very quests that we've been talking about all Advent. The quest for a meaning that can't be taken away. The battle against sin in our lives. The longing for a deep soul rest in the midst of a chaotic and distracted world. See, we can't win those on our own. We can't just go out and achieve that soul rest on our own. But God steps in and wins them for us. But it's even more than that, too. So, yes, of course, God saves individual people, and he brings us um, from sin into freedom, from shame into glory. But his salvation, his victory, is actually even bigger than that. Listen to a theologian that I like named Fleming Rutledge, which, let's be honest, that's just an amazing name, okay? Fleming Rutledge. She's good, though. Listen to this. It's not as if the only thing that has changed is that our sins are forgiven and we person by person individually come to believe in Jesus. Rather, there's been a transfer of eons, an exchange of one whole world for another whole world. The powers, the principalities, they might not know it yet, but their foundations have been undermined and they cannot last. The creation itself has been and is being invited um, by the new world, the ages to come. You see, what she's saying is that this victory that God achieves for the world, it's not just to pluck you and me out of a world going to hell in a handbasket. No, no, his salvation, his victory, it's global, right? He he goes to make everything that's wrong with the world right again. He dismantles spiritual forces. He, He takes out Satan. He even defeats death itself. The Old Testament poets wrote of the marvelous things that God has done. They looked forward to these achievements, but they didn't know how it was all going to happen. We, on the other side of history, we actually have a much clearer understanding of how God achieved all that he achieved. In fact, we read it earlier from Ephesians 2. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, right, this global resurrection, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness 
towards us in Jesus Christ. Here's the victory of God. We have a champion. We have a hero who can fight and win the battles that we could never win on our own. He can secure an identity for us that's untouchable by the world. He can give us a great value and a love that will never, ever be removed by anything that happens to us. He solved our guilt problem. He solved our shame problem, our meaning problem, and he's established a whole new kingdom that he invites us to participate in. See, he wins the victory, and then in verse 2, he announces it to the whole world. The Lord has made known this salvation, this victory. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in England in the past century, and I think he can help us understand the real power of this announcement in verse 2 by asking us to imagine the opposite announcement. Okay, so this is what he says. He says, imagine a king goes into battle um, against an invading army to defend his land and his people, just like we've been saying Jesus does for us. Okay, this king defeats the army that the enemy, um, or I'm sorry, he defeats the army and then he sends messengers back to the capital to announce the news. The messenger goes back with great joy and he says, the enemy has been defeated, it's done, we can have a party, put down your weapons, rejoice, the war's over, okay? Now imagine it goes like this. Imagine that same king goes out to that same army, but instead of winning that war, he doesn't win that war, okay? He still sends news back to the capital, doesn't he? But what's that news sound like now? Now that announcement sounds like they're coming, okay? Uh, Pull up the drawbridge. Everybody get your bow and arrow and your sword. Hide the family and the kids because a war is coming for your life. So what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is that every other religion in the world, every other life philosophy, every other answer out there sends back from the front lines advice about how to fight the battle of life, okay? Every other religion says, here's how you can achieve salvation and joy. You've got to fight for your life. Here are the rites. Here are the rituals. Here's the transformation of your consciousness. Here's the laws, the regulations. The secular world tells us the same thing. Here's how you can justify your existence. Here's how you can matter. You can achieve. You can gain wealth. You can do whatever it's going to be. There's a... a, an advice that's given to you to how to fight for your lives. But only the gospel of Jesus sends back from the front lines news about a war that's already won. It's totally unique in all the world. This is the announcement, not the advice, but the gospel announcement of Psalm 98. Not just instructions or commands or best practices for us to follow, but the announcement that everything that we're really hoping for in life has already been for us and just given to us as a gift. And it turns out this victory is the basis of our joy. This is what God has done for us. As the psalmist turns to the next stanza, now he says, well, what do we do for God? What do we do in response to this announcement, this news? And in the same way that the word salvation or victory appeared three times in the first three verses. Um, listen for another word that appears three times in these next three verses. All right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, 
with the lyre and the sound of melodies, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, your Lord. What's the word? Joy, right? If God's great gift of salvation is given to us for free, our great response as his followers and his heavenly children is a joyful noise. It's a new song. All right, here's Christianity in a nutshell. You want to put it on a little little postcard? Here it is. Uh, Jesus wins for us, and then we celebrate for him. Okay? That's Christianity. Um, that's a, and also, let me just say, that's a really good deal. Okay? This is, you're not going to find a better deal on the market than this one. In fact, one way we talk about our mission here at Grace Church want to be and who we want to be for this community is we exist to celebrate the gospel and then love the valley, right? We exist to enjoy grace and then extend the grace that we've been given. So here's the question. What does this celebration feel like? What's the party Christians are supposed to be having if this is all true? Um, what, What is the joy that we're supposed to carry in our hearts once we understand all the marvelous things that God's done for us. Because here in Psalm 98, it actually shows up as a command. Do you notice that? It says, be joyful. Make a joyful noise. It's something, I mean, is that even something we can choose to follow? Because isn't that sort of like saying to someone who's down or sad or depressed or grieving, like, just feel better? I mean, that's like the worst thing you can say, right? That's the exact opposite of what you're supposed to say. Is that what Psalm 98 is saying to us? Just go feel better, right? Look at all God's done for you. What does the command to be joyful even mean? Well, <clears throat> I've always loved C.S. Lewis. A lot of you guys know this about me. Um, from my dad reading the Narnia books to me as a kid to discovering mere Christianity at this really crucial stage in my own life in high school as I was wrestling with doubt and faith. Um, and uh, maybe the central theme of C.S. Lewis's life, by his own admission, was his quest for joy. I mean, the guy was a joy pilgrim, okay? Um, And from a very young age, and he felt this very deeply, and he even titled his spiritual autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Okay, listen listen to what he says about joy in that. There is an unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any satisfaction. Okay, that's a very C.S. Lewis kind of line. He's so good. Um, And he says, I call it joy. It must have this stab, this pang, this inconsolable longing. Joy is never a possession. It's always a desire for something longer, further ago, or something still about to be. And in this great essay um, called uh, uh, The Weight of Glory, he puts it this way. Apparently, our lifelong nostalgia and our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside, that's no neurotic fancy, okay? You're not crazy if you feel that. He says, but that's actually the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be a glory and an honor beyond anything we could merit, and also the healing of an old ache. So that's how C.S. Lewis describes joy. See, what he's getting at here, and what I think Psalm 98 is calling us to in response to God's marvelous deeds, is a growing hunger and a growing longing and an ache to be with Jesus. 
See, Christian joy, it's not necessarily a warm, fuzzy feeling in our belly, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily feel like falling in love for the first time. It doesn't necessarily feel like this ecstatic, spiritual high. Deep joy is something different. It's a longing or a pang for more of Jesus, our champion, the one who has done all these marvelous things for us. And in this broken world, longing to be near our hero, savior, brother, friend, all of that, as C.S. Lewis describes it, can often feel like we're missing something, like an ache, like an emptiness, like wanting to be on the inside of the door with him and enjoy him in his fullness. I think that's the command in Psalm 98. Long for Jesus. It's not to be weirdly perky all the time, but to want Jesus more. So this psalm, what this psalm really does is it guides our worship doesn't it? I mean, you can even tell just reading through it, it's a song about worship. It talks about singing praises and playing music. And this is a call for us as we gather to worship to long for Jesus together more. Uh, See, what what this does is as we gather together, um, it's to hear again, it's the chance to hear again the marvelous things God's done for us, for our hearts to grow bigger for him together just like we prayed for these kids a little while ago. It's to encourage one another down the, down the path as co-pilgrims of joy. Um, we long for Jesus and his kingdom to come as we remind one another of that reality. Our champion sent home the news, okay? Have you heard it? From the front lines, he won the battle for us. Have you heard it? And do you believe it? And do you know anything in your life who might need to hear it too, right? That's what happens on a Sunday morning. We celebrate, we sing, and we hear again the victory of our God. But the Bible tells us that more, all of life, more than just this hour and 20 minutes, unless the preacher gets ahead of steam and it turns into an hour and 30 minutes, um, more than this little slice of your week is worship, okay? On the Christian story, all of life is worship. And so this is not only a call to long for Jesus more when we get together on a Sunday morning. This is a call to bring that longing into everything we do in our lives. So we can long for Jesus and his kingdom to come in our homes as we raise children in a culture of grace and not performance, where forgiveness is common, where the Bible is normal. I mean, where else can the Bible be normal in the world today, right? where um, talking about Jesus is regular. We can long for Jesus more in his kingdom to come in our workplace through dignity and respect shown to everybody, regardless of their position or their popularity, through the quality of the work we do, because we know that we don't just work for our boss, we also work for our king and our friend who has done all these things for us. And we can long for Jesus more in his kingdom, in our hobbies, in our travel, in our play, in our entertainment. The practice of joy is the habit of longing for God more. For him to be more clear, more celebrated, more trusted, and more embodied in our own lives. And we get to do that. That's part of the privilege of being in his family. We are like foreigners from the future. Right? We carry a passport from heaven. We happen to live here for now, but we get to extend this news like the messengers coming home from the front lines. And the last stanza of this psalm, 
um, actually tells us that we're not alone in that mission. And I think this last stanza is lovely, and I wish we could give it more time. Um, We'll just make a quick comment on it. Maybe another sermon, we'll spend more time on it. But verse 7 and 8, the psalmist introduces another voice to accompany ours in this joyful song. Verse 7, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. You know what he's doing here? He's saying, yes, gather together, sing a joyful noise to the Lord, but you're not alone. There is an orchestra of creation that backs the songs of God's people. Now, of course, this is poetry, and we got to be careful not to read it too literally, okay? Rivers don't have hands. Mountains don't have vocal cords. But do you really think that's our problem? Or is our problem the other problem? That we think, oh, this is poetry, so we don't have to take it very seriously. The Bible takes creation's song very seriously. Romans 8 tells us that even now, creation itself is groaning. It's longing. It's aching for its king to return and make everything right. So it turns out um, nature is not our mother, but creation is our little sister, okay? And one day we will join voices with her, and the song that she sings to her creator will be amazing. She'll sing maybe really for the first time, and our world will come alive as we can't even imagine it now, and it'll be stunning to witness. It was... um, Actually, this psalm, Psalm 98, that Isaac Watts was meditating on when he wrote the famous hymn, Joy to the World. Um, we're going to sing it in a moment, but you can, see psalm, or you can see Psalm 98 all through that hymn. From the first stanza where he writes, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and both heaven and nature sing. The dual choirs of creation. So the last line where he says, he rules the world with truth and grace and he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. See, he's writing about the marvelous deeds that God has done. So last question as we kind of come to a close here. Um, Why is that a Christmas hymn? Why is Joy to the World uh, a hymn we sing at Christmas? He doesn't even mention Jesus' birth. Any angels, no magi, no, uh, no shepherds in the field, no sheep, not even a Christmas tree in joy to the world. Why is this a Christmas hymn? And I think the answer, and why do I think Psalm 98 is a, is a psalm worth talking about on Christmas weekend? It's because of verse 9, which is the clincher, where the psalmist writes that Jesus comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity, because that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? That Jesus comes. He has arrived in our world as our champion. He comes to bring justice. He comes to bring hope and life. He comes to fulfill your joy. He came once and he secured it all at his works of salvation. He announced it all. But the next time he comes, that final time, instead of just removing the power of sin from this world, he's going to remove the very presence of sin from this world. And we're going to live in that world that the psalmist talks about forever. And the aching pang of joy that we experience now as we long for more Jesus will be replaced by the full presence of the one we've longed for this whole time. So since C.S. Lewis is kind of the guide for pilgrims of joy, 
Let's finish up with him. Here's a quote from Mere Christianity. He writes, The Christian says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger. There's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. There's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. And if I find in myself a desire, which no experience in this world can satisfy, he says, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise um, or be unthankful for the earthly blessings, and on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else, which they're only a kind of copy or image or echo. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. In other words, make a joyful noise before the king, for he has done marvelous things. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you um, for all you've done for us. It's, uh, it's impossible to, to sum it up, um, even in a sermon, even in a lifetime. Um, you really have done marvelous things for your people. You're our champion and our friend and our savior. You're our brother and our king. Help us long for you more and help that joy in our hearts grow bigger and bigger as we live our life here, knowing that one day we'll be reunited to you when you come again and you will fulfill everything we've always longed for. Help us trust you and know you and live into that gospel promise that you've given us. We ask all these things in your name.